This is George Ann Hughes, and this is The Bite Show. And it is with great pleasure and a blessing that we have Joseph P. Farrell with us right now. 
please visit Joseph's website, GizaDeathStar.com. There is a PayPal button there. Please use it. We've got to keep Joseph researching and writing. Uh, he has produced some of the most interesting, deep books uh, about science that that y you just you can't buy any better. So go have a look at Joseph's website, GizaDeathStar.com, and use that PayPal button. And um, Joseph and I are going to talk about a lot of different topics tonight. We're winging it. <laughs> yeah, we are. We really are. And what we really would like to talk about, we can't talk about. Well, we can talk about a little teensy bit of it. A teeny weeny bit. Okay. <laughs> that way they won't bite their nails too much. <laughs> we wouldn't want that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay, Joseph. Mm -hmm. Um you know, I wanted to ask you, you know, Babylon gangsters, mm -hmm. and several thoughts occurred to me on that, and we'll get to that topic, but I know you had some announcements you wanted to make. Yes, I do, and one of them, uh, folks, this announcement I did not clear with George Ann prior oh. to this show. Oh, dear, Woody. <laughs> <laughs> so this is... This is um, I'm kind of putting her on the spot, but folks, George Ann told me something previously this week, and I, I want you to, instead of working out that PayPal donation button on my site, please work it out on hers, because these shows are very, very expensive to produce and, and put out there for people, and she does it free. But she depends on your support. And I can tell you that the amount of listeners that listen to her shows versus the amount of people, which sadly and uh, you can count quite literally on one hand. So you need to work out her PayPal button, please, and keep these shows, keep her on the air. So that's the first announcement, and I know I didn't clear it with you, but there we go. Okay. <laughs> it's out there now, and you oh. either have to erase your tape or else. Oh. Well, thank you for that. That's very, uh, very kind and generous of you to do that. Yeah, you're more than welcome. More than welcome. And the second little announcement is kind of, um, uh, oh, I don't know. It, I finished a new book. I just sent it off this last week on Wednesday and uh, sent it off to the publisher and since my publisher unbeknownst to me until I found out a week ago when I went on to Amazon apparently my publisher uh, already notified them about the new book even before he had the manuscript so oh my goodness. <laughs> that was news to me you know title will sort of speak for itself. 
yourself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you you've been sitting on that one for quite a few months, I know. Yes. But anyway, the title of the new book, it will be published uh, by Adventures Unlimited Press. Hopefully, I would imagine between uh, February and March of next year. Uh, it is the longest book I have written yet to date. It is about uh, 520 pages, uh, which is longer than The Cosmic War and longer than The SS Brotherhood of the Bell. So it's it's a long book. But the title of the book, to make the long story short, and I know everyone's wishing I'd shut up and just give the title. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but anyway, the title of the book is called Roswell and the Reich. Uh huh. And I, I get the title. Yeah. Uh huh. The title. The title does say it all. So. Yes. Those are the two announcements. Wow. Well, I know that this new one coming out. Yeah, it's seriously, Joseph. It, people are going to be biting their nails as they read it. It's, well, yeah, there may oh. be some people biting their nails, or maybe some people throwing tomatoes at my image oh, <laughs> in <dear>. effigy. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. It's it's not going to please the um, how to put it. It's not going to please the true believer crowd at all, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and nor is it going to pl- uh, to please. The skeptics crowd, because there's one thing for certain that it was not, and that was a balloon of any sort. That's right. <laughs> so, uh, we can we can rule two ends of the spectrum: uh, balloons and extraterrestrials out of the equation. So anyway, that the title sort of gives that away. So I'm not disclosing anything there. But anyway, yeah, it's going to have a lot of people either. Biting their nose or um, a little angry at, well, a lot angry at me for what I say. Anyway. Well, uh, yeah, uh, I was holding my breath. Oh, you know, when we talk about technology, mm-hmm. Joseph, uh, recently uh, a wonderful audio file with Michael Sherratt. Oh, yes, uh huh. He brings up and documents. Oh, yes, I know he does. The, the technology mm-hmm. that uh, goes back. I mean, his work kind of goes hand in hand with yours. Right. And, and it is amazing. It is stunning yeah. the level of uh, technological knowledge that, you know, a hundred years ago. Oh, yes. Well, Michael, you know, Michael has concentrated um, a lot of his effort into looking at not only the technology involved in the American military's black project, yeah. but also in the amount of money that they have spent on it. Oh yeah, and continue to spend. So it's it's rather if you're not familiar with his work, you know, it's it's kind yeah. of a jaw dropper when you first oh. <laughs> when you yeah. first read all this research. Oh. I know Michael is quite a uh, stickler for details too, and I can assure yeah. you he's he's got a library full of them. So. Oh. Yeah, it's a, it's a stunning uh, story with uh, for the scope of it. Oh yes, and it it it's no wonder that the Nazis had such advances in their technology. I mean, yes, uh, <laughs> it's a little on the spooky side. Well, to a certain extent, it is. You know, we've discussed in many many sessions about the 
the three different bases, I think, of their uh, their physics thinking back in the yeah. 20s and 30s, and, and then on into the Third Reich itself. But the other thing that I have never discussed in connection with their technology and, you know, the more advanced things yeah. is that the Nazi uh, government was was very fascinated with Tesla. Oh, yeah. And with his work, and particularly with his work in the wireless transmission of electrical power. So, you know, you have really four streams kind of feeding into into their developments. But, you know, certainly I know, I don't know if, oh, what Michael said uh, when you interviewed him, but... Oh, we uh, talked about you. <laughs> <laughs> That's why my ears were burning. Yes. <laughs> well, anyway, um, he, I know, has probably in his research run across the influence of Tesla on the development of American black projects as yeah. well. So, you know, it's a big, 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 huge story. And when you add to that story the amount of money oh, that yes. has been spent in all of these countries, you know, Germany, the United States, France, Great Britain, Russia, even Canada got in on the action yeah. in some cases. So, you know, it's just, it's just, it's just really rather amazing. Well, I had this question that mm -hmm. um, was bothering me. You know, in Babylon's banksters, and we think of the banksters, and uh, you know, down through the millennia. Mm -hmm. um, Joseph, is there a oh, how do I want to say it? Like a an equation that they use in relation to their. Um, their money, mm -hmm. if you will, uh, working and their e control being effective in light of the population, the numbers. Um, well, the, there are several equations for specific things. Okay. Um, there are equations for figuring out the valuation of currencies based right. on gross domestic product. There's equations... Uh, for just about every little financial thing that you can think of that they want to have some sort of ability to predict behavior. Now, the, the, well, hang on just, okay. just a moment. Okay. There is one equation in particular that I uh, show in Babylon's Banksters that is a more recent addition to their arsenal, and now it's a very questionable addition. But this equation basically modeled risk, risk factors, oh. and the equation itself is, is really a kind of a probability distribution equation, but there are all sorts of problems once you get into macroeconomic modeling, and in particular this one equation, and I'll, I'll mention it briefly, what, what these are. Okay. The first problems that these models have is that they are taking into account so many different interdependent factors and trying to reduce them to what mathematicians call a scalar okay. or a scalar. A scalar is, you know, we've been talking about scalar physics and scalar waves and so on and so forth, but mathematically 
a scalar is simply a technical term for a number. In other words, it has no internal stresses, and in physics terms, it has, on first analysis, it has no internal vectors. Follow me? Yes. So in other words, it, 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 to draw a geometric analogy, it would be kind of the mathematical equivalent of a point. It's a purely dimensionless magnitude. Okay, that's all it is. So when you are trying to reduce economic interdependence and, and uh, interrelated factors that they build into these equations, what they're really doing is they're trying by reducing everything to a probability distribution. In other words, 80% true that this is going to happen, 20% isn't. What they're really doing is they're reducing risk to a scalar. Follow me? Okay. All right. But that number if, is just like what we encountered in physics. That number itself can be analyzed. In other words, it has an internal structure. Remember what we said about scalars in, in our Cosmic War series? Yeah. Well, in physics, those scalars have internal structures, all right? And the same is true in economics. They have internal structures. So the scalar is not purely a scalar whenever you're dealing with applied mathematics, okay? It's not the same thing that a mathematician thinks of when he thinks of a scalar. Now, here's the real problem. In physics, there's, and in fact, in, in mathematics itself, there is what is known as the multi-body problem in equations. And when you get, you know, for your listeners out there who are familiar with the calculus, they eventually get into the multivariable or the multi-body problem, okay? Now, I'm, I'm going to use the physics analogy here because it will be much easier for people to understand it in an applied connection rather than in a pure mathematics connection. In physics, the multi-body problem is basically how do you... Let's, let's think, for example, of Newton's equations of gravitation. Basically, he worked out his equations for two bodies acting upon each other, okay? Mm -hmm. But what happens when you throw in lots of bodies interacting with each other? Follow me? Okay. Once you increase the number of variables or bodies in the equation, the ability of the equation itself to predict accurately begins to break down. And there's all sorts of, you know, fancy juggling techniques, but basically the bottom line is mathematicians and physicists have not found any really good workable way to deal with what is called the multi-body problem, okay? This is why there are all sorts of little bugs and, and problems that keep popping up over and over within, uh, of, within mathematical physics because the more you add to the problem, the more difficult it becomes to, to try and make these equations work. Now let's go to economics. Okay. The same thing then holds true. The more risk factors and interrelated factors you add into your model, the more difficult it is for that equation to model things accurately. Follow me? Okay. And when you add to that the problem that the man who came up with this one particular equation that has led to this current breakdown, when he did this, he, as you're going to discover when you read Babylon's Banksters, he threw out 
a lot of data in order to make the theoretical model. And the other thing he did was he basically acknowledged that the data for some of the things that he was modeling didn't even exist at that time. So in other words, you have a situation, as I go into great lengths in Babylon's Banksters to show, you have a situation where on the one hand you have all of these economists and, and even physicists working for banks modeling all this stuff. So in other words, yeah. working for banks? Yeah, I'll get to that. Oh, oh yeah, yes. Uh, the reason, you know, you have a situation now in international uh, banking and, and economics. You have sort of the same, almost parallel analogy situation to what you have in physics. You have theoretical economics that's developing all these, you know, very mathematical models. And on the other hand, you have empirical economics where you're dealing with just nuts and bolts raw data. Yeah. Just like a scientist deals with nuts and bolts experiments, okay? And, you know, to quote the old German philosopher Hegel, who was developing this wonderful idealistic philosophical theory, you know, there was a famous quotation of him. A student challenged him, and he says, but Herr Professor, you know, the facts contradict your theory. And then his response was, well, then so much the worse for the facts. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> you know, so you have the same dichotomy going on in economics and banking that you have within uh, the realm of physics itself. You've got a standard theoretical model, and then you've got increasing amounts of empirical data that are showing that there's something wrong with that theoretical model. Okay? This is happening, this is happening uh, almost across the board right now in all of the sciences and applied sciences. Uh, from physics and biology all the way to economics. You know, the, the standard theories are really under fire. And to a certain extent, the only reason they're being perpetuated is that the people working with them haven't invented anything better. Or in the case of physics, we know that there's better theories or alternative theories out there, but they don't want to talk about those. <laughs> yeah. Know, because those lead to certain nasty implications. But, uh, yeah, it's... Uh, it's a big story. Now, you interjected and asked a question, and I forgot already what it was. Well, it, you know, these, all these formulas and things yes. that they've got, um, you know, and they, they um, inventory everything on the planet. Yes. Yeah. Okay, and that includes people. Yes. Okay, they're, um, <laughs> they're designed for uh, financial things the economic things, mm -hmm. um, there comes a breaking point uh, that has to do with population mm -hmm. of not only country but of the world. Mm -hmm. And is this, could, is this why uh, they've come up with this uh, um, business that, you know, there's just too many people on the planet? Well, this, this whole, you know... Malthusian thinking is very much a part of and has been part of their thinking since the 18th century. And for those who don't know who Thomas Malthus was, he was a British philosopher that way back in, in the 18th century wrote a treatise basically saying, you know, way back then that, you know, the world is already overpopulated and, and uh, you know, as population goes up, return on resources goes down. Yeah. But the whole problem with this model and with people who think like that is twofold. 
Number one, it makes no account or takes no account for advances in human technology. So, for example, when Malthus was writing, petroleum was not considered a resource. As technology advanced, it eventually became a resource. Right. Uh, at one time, silicon was not considered a resource. Now it is, obviously, you know, with computers. Yeah. So the problem with Malthusian thinking and with its, therefore with its whole conclusions about population is it considers the world as a static and closed system. All right. And in Babylon's Banksters, I point out that closed system economics and closed system physics are really conceptually one and the same. They are, in fact, they are so close in, in terms of the people thinking in terms of them that you really have to conclude that they're identical. So when you look at physics and economics differently, when you look at, at the problem of human energy as an open system and therefore conclude you know, all of this engineering of energy from the vacuum as a possibility, by the same token, that opens up a different economic system entirely. Okay? Mm-hmm. So when you look at the economic system that we have been operating under, or rather that the bankers have been making everyone operate under, that system really is a closed uh, closed system because, as I've mentioned before, since they're the ones monetizing debt, in other words, you know, that phrase is just a technical way for saying that you're circulating debt notes as currency. All right? yeah. Yeah. What they what they've really done then is that they have not only forced everybody into a situation where there's never enough of that type of currency in circulation to pay off any interest debt. So someone always comes out the loser, all right? But the other problem that that does is it, it, is it closes the physics system as well. So the two go hand in hand. So, you know, back when you said physicists working for banksters, well, this is very true. You know, especially uh, during the 80s, as more and more people were graduating with with physics degrees, they discovered they could take those very techniques of applied mathematical modeling and analysis of, you know, very complex interlocked systems that they were learning in quantum mechanics and apply them to economics and go to work for these big banks and make lots more money than they ever would, you know, working for universities and, and so on and so forth. Yeah. So this, too, is, is a part of the story. Well, you know, we've got also this uh, situation, Joseph, where they're saying there's just too many people on the Well, earth. yeah, but, you know, that's my point. I disagree. Okay. I disagree. Uh, you know, and I'm not a scaremonger. If, yeah, the bank, right. if the banksters want to think that way, then fine and dandy, go ahead and let them. But they're the ones, you know, that have that have funded those studies. But yeah. in, in doing so, they are not opening their minds. In other words, if you surround yourself by enough doom and gloomers, that's the way you're going to start thinking. Sure, you Absolutely. know, and that's exactly what they've done. So, to a certain extent, I lay this apocalyptic culture right at their feet. You know, they, they have helped create it and, yeah. and create the, the climate of opinion that exists. But the reason I say that is to give you an example of, of two different kinds of thinking. Of course, back in, in the 80s, the Club of Rome published an infamous report 
in which Malthusian thinking became one of the bedrock foundations of their policy and, and of their long-term policy concepts. And that report was called the Global 2000 Report. Yeah. All right. Well, back then, when that report was issued, there was a very famous uh, thinker, basically, a uh, fellow who is now dead, but back then, very famous thinker that was involved with these think tanks that make these studies. His name was Herman Kahn, K-A-H-N. And he published a book in response to the Global 2000 Report, and the book was called The Resourceful Earth. And basically his whole point was is that the Global 2000 Report is, is basically 18th century thinking. It's, in other words, based on this idea of a static system of technology, a lack of human progress, and therefore a resource base that is frozen in time because it's frozen in a particular technology. Yeah. And therefore, you know, the, they come up with this idea, well, the world's overpopulated. Yeah. Well, you know, I hate to break this to people, but you can go to West Texas or, you know, New Mexico or out here in the wilds of western South Dakota and see very clearly <laughs> yes. that we're not running out of any room anytime soon. Yeah, well, it's obvious these people haven't flown over this country because well, of course there's a lot of room out there. Well, of course there is, yeah. and, you know, and... Much of this land is arable if you, you know if you want to bother to take the steps to start making it agriculturally productive. Right. The real point, I think, that that overpopulation and and the people that you know bang their apocalyptic drums and say, oh, we've got too many people and so on and so forth. Yeah. I think the real problem is is that we have these big sprawling urban centers. Uh, and there, if you want to talk about overpopulation, I mean, my word, go to Bombay or, you know, go to oh, Tokyo yeah. or, or yeah. places like this or Shanghai. Well, yeah, it's very apparent that, you know, you've got too many people all crammed into one space living on top of each other. And in a certain sense, these huge cities are themselves a legacy of a technology that's been basically kind of frozen into the 19th century. Uh, because that's why cities rose to the size that they did. They became centers for manufacturing and industry and so on. Well, as industry is dispersed and, and as we become, by virtue of the technology we have now available, we have become more interdependent. And in my opinion, I don't think these cities are, uh, you know... I don't think that they're the best solution given the technologies we now have available, is what I'm saying. I yeah. think, I think uh, these big metropolitan urban sprawls are, are going to become increasingly obsolete. In fact, they already are. I mean, they're no longer functional. They don't really perform any util function for anything. So I think that's another problem that, that we face in the long term. But, you know, I'm not going to bite and swallow the, the Rockefeller and Rothschild matrix pill. Yeah, really. And assume that, you know, human progress and technology are going to stay frozen in their hands. It simply will not. Right. And uh, as a result of that, I'm not going to buy into this idea that, that we are overpopulated. I think certainly we have a population problem. That's 
I'm not denying that. But overpopulation, you know, that is such an, uh, that term is, is so laden with all these Malthusian conceptions and all the little implicit assumptions that I've just outlined that go with it that no one ever really wants to talk about. Because you see, once again, if you open up the system of economics and of the creation of money and put it back into the hands where it always belonged, namely the state, yes. and therefore make it debt-free, then you break that closed economic model in the economy. If you would do the same thing in physics, most of these problems would be over so fast it would make our head spin. In a certain sense, Georgian, I think, as I've mentioned many times before, I think these global elites, at least at the very top, know that these technologies are there and that they work. Their problem has always been, how do we allow them into the open? Yes. So in such a way that, number one, they do not challenge their power base, and number two, do not fall into the wrong hands and get weaponized into something truly horrific. Yeah. So, you know, they're looking after their own house, and number two, they're trying to prevent, uh, from altruistic motives, they're trying to prevent a proliferation nightmare of a technology, you know, that would make H-bombs look like firecrackers. Yeah. So, you know, it's a big, big problem that they face. Uh, there's no denying it. But uh, eventually, eventually, technology always overcomes the tyrant. And, and somehow, eventually, the tyrant's hold is always broken. Well, I pray so. <laughs> well, it's, it, you, you know, know it, the, mm. these elites have been trying and trying and trying for decades, if not centuries, to control everything. And the fact of the matter is is that there's always something just beyond their grasp. Yes. And that something always undoes them. So, you know, uh, if you want to be on the losing side, go join Mr. Rockefeller and Mr. Rothschild. And if you want to be on the winning side, then stay to yourself and think for yourself and, and uh, pray them into non-existence. <laughs> yes. Oh, my goodness. Well, you know, I don't see any of them since they are running around saying, you know, that a, a, a billions of people need to be killed uh, to make more room. I don't see any of them volunteering. Well, no, <laughs> no, and they never will. Of course but, not. but the problem is, is you know, I don't see them saying billions of people need to be killed. I see them saying we've got billions too much population, and there is a difference. Uh, between saying those two things. So again, I'm not on the global elite is out to kill everybody bandwagon. I, you know, number one, as I've said many times before, and I just refuse to join this scaremongering or to give that billions need to be killed idea any credence whatsoever. And the reason why is once you throw those kind of dice, you are taking such extreme risk to your own power base yeah that and and these people are not only extraordinarily devious but they're extraordinarily cautious people you know other than that little hiccup of world war two <laughs> you know. yes. but um these people are extremely cautious and i just don't see them playing or throwing that card i really don't well, Joseph, 
we know that, you know, what is it, trillions are missing of yeah. dollars. You know, yeah. it's just missing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> how can that be put into these... Um, if you if this money is trickling into the big slush fund for mm-hmm. these projects, mm-hmm. wouldn't we notice, or would we uh, notice uh, an increase in uh, certain metals being mined, or uh, defense contractors uh, getting a huge uh, boost to, uh, to research something or whatever? I mean, isn't there some way or indicator? To trace this out. Well, yeah. Anytime money is put into circulation, you're going to see signs that it is in circulation. And this is the problem with this trillions and trillions of dollars, is it doesn't appear to be showing up on the radar screen. Yeah. Uh, So my question is, and many have asked this question, you know, we should have seen some big inflationary spike already, and we have not seen it. Right. So there are three <clears throat> possibilities, actually maybe four. One of them is kind of a two-pronged possibility. And again, I'm not an economist, so I'm, I'm just kind of talking off the top of my head here. Um, but the first possibility is is that these corporate elites are using every trick in the book that they can think of, including uh, media manipulation and and statistics manipulation, to prevent that reality from registering. Okay, in other words, we're kind of being put in, in that scenario into the Matrix movie, where reality is, in fact, that the economy is melting down. Yeah. But we're being told and things are being manipulated in such a way to prolong the illusion. I don't think that that scenario is actually very plausible because that would imply a measure of control that I do not think outside of North America that these elites actually have, Okay? okay, or at least our elite. The other problem then, which brings us to the second scenario, is that that vast amount of money was basically a blackmail payoff, which goes to the scenario I've mentioned before. Someone held the gun to the Anglo-American elite's head and said, if you don't pay us a lot of money, uh, you know, we are going to pull the trigger. Okay. Yeah. So in that case, what that means is somebody bought up a lot of that, those uh, security instruments, dead instruments, yeah. basically as a way of secretly buying up the infrastructure of North America. Sure. Uh, that's one possibility. Okay. And there are little indicators of it here and there. Um, certainly the Chinese hold a lot of U.S. debt. Uh, I think the Japanese probably do, but not nearly to the extent of the pie slice that they did back in the 80s. The third possibility is that this money has, like you said, gone into some of these black projects, which would not surprise me. Uh, But even if it did, there would still 
be some of that money showing up in circulation. So if it went into black projects and it's not showing up in circulation, then that means that that whole economy is much, much larger and much more off the books than any of those who've researched it have even yet really fathomed. Uh, it means, in a sense, in a sense, you have a parallel economy, yeah. uh, a black market kind of thing that's totally off the books. So my guess is that you're looking at some combination of those last two scenarios, um, that you're looking at uh, money that's circulating in a completely separate economy that is well hidden, and also that much of that money may have just been, you know, a blackmail payoff, basically. Yeah, wow. Oh. Yeah, neither, neither one are terribly, <laughs> are terribly nice scenarios. Oh, my goodness. Well, what would this payoff be for? What uh, can we speculate? Well, my speculation is is that, and, you know, I've mentioned this scenario before, my speculation is is that one of the major factions, hidden faction in the world that is trying to vie, you know, to be on top of the pyramid for this, New World Order, right, is some sort of descendant of the Nazi International that was put into place by Martin Bormann <laughs> right at the end of World War II and then uh, basically initiated after the war. <clears throat> I think this is one of the major third players on the world stage. And in that scenario, I've tried to argue that in the books that after World War II there was more or less a detente or a modus vivendi that was struck between that group representing basically the remains of Europe mm -hmm. because it was you know let's stop and remember what what the Nazis were in a certain sense they were the first European internationalists in other words the Nazis ruled Europe you know from basically the end of June of 1940 to the end of the war, you know, when they'd overrun France and, and taken over the Low Countries and Norway and what have you. And then later, of course, added the Balkans to that list. Um, they basically were kind of the, the core of, of a united Europe at that time. And this was the goal that Bormann set for them after the war. Yeah. You know, to create a European confederation which Germany would be able to dominate, both politically and economically. <coughs> so, you know, that has come true. So that tells me that that group is somehow behind the scenes still a major player. I think that detente, pardon me, <coughs> that detente has broken down. And as a result of that, you have seen an increasing kind of uh, independence in Europe. I think you're going to continue to see that. So that's the scenario I think is going on here. I think that post-war detente is now in the process of fracturing. Now, they're trying to dress it up in all sorts of interesting and creative ways, namely yeah. by expanding NATO uh, to include more and more uh, countries. 
Yeah. And there's two ways to look at that. They are either trying to dress up and, and conceal what's really happening, namely this big rift, or the Europeans are using NATO as a to create a political instrument by which they intend to wage this uh, covert war and take the leadership position away from the American and Ang uh, British elites and put it into their own hands. Uh, I think probably it's the latter, the second of those two alternatives. And if that were to happen, then mm -hmm. what, what could we speculate would be the outcome? Well, the outcome is, is that the Anglo-American elite is suffers a tremendous loss of power, oh, yeah. number one, and, and a tremendous loss of prestige, number two, as I think they've already done, and at least in the second instance, they've lost a lot of prestige, simply because too many people are alive to their game. Yeah, yeah. Particularly outside of North America. Uh, there's just too many people that know who they are and what they've been doing and just can't stand them anymore. <laughs> I don't blame uh, them. <laughs> you know, and... Yeah. Quietly, people are, are even beginning to debate, well, is this kind of capitalism really what we had in mind when we wanted capitalism? You know, is this uh, kind of predator, banker class capitalism really what it's all about? Uh, so you see kind of breaking down that old left-right uh, dialectical opposition. Yeah. And I think, you know, it, it has yet to hit this country, but eventually it will. Uh, people are waking up even here, believe it or not. But yeah. uh, they're going to suffer a lot of loss of power. And as a result of that, I think they're going to be restricted increasingly to managing their own regional affairs rather than trying to manage the globe. Yes. Um, Managing the globe hasn't worked out too well. Nope, it sure hasn't. No, no it sure hasn't. We've got... Uh, we had that little hiccup called World War II. Uh-huh, <laughs> yeah. And we've got, uh, I believe it's in, uh, is it, it's not Venezuela, uh, a Latin American, South American country mm -hmm. where the U.S. is uh, uh, making agreements, mm -hmm. you know, for bases down there. Yes. And... Um, I don't know if that's good or not. <laughs> well, what it, that's a response, in a certain sense, to the moves that Russia and China have made down there. Yeah. Uh, it's you know there was inevitably going to be have to be a response to that, and that's part of it. But the other thing is is that it's a response to the fact that Latin we know we have never been popular in Latin America. Right. Because basically, we have simply tried <clears throat> to bully those countries right. into lockstep with us. Uh, the only time that that this has not really paid off, uh, in the case of Brazil, they just refused to be bullied. And, you know, Argentina as well, at certain points in its history, you know, that we can boil down to two words, and they are Juan and Perón. Yes, <laughs> you know? yes. And they, they haven't proven terribly cooperative either, you know. So, um, they, you know, 
the problem is they've they've got to to make sure that Latin America does not fall out of their orbit. But I think eventually it will anyway. Um, the the consequences of their actions and their economic imperialism down there are yeah. simply not going to be forgotten by those people. Of um, course not. Of course not, no. May we pause just yes. a little while? Yes, we oh. sure can. All right, thank you. Okay, we're back. Yes. <laughs> uh, Joseph, recently mm-hmm. there was a major mm-hmm. power outage yes. in uh, uh, Brazil. Right. And I know there's a lot of different things that can cause that. Right. Um, can you address that? You mean, okay, uh, you're talking about the outage in, in uh, Rio de Janeiro and, and yeah. uh, Sao Paulo? Yeah, it was huge. Yeah. yeah. The uh, Personally, I do not think that that was accidental for a very simple reason. Number That's one. why I'm asking you to address Well, yeah, I, I, you know, yeah. the idea that the Brazilians are, are so incompetent as to black out their largest city and, and their nation's capital is, you know... Um, it's ludicrous. Well, it is ludicrous. Yeah. Uh, I think you have to look at Brazil uh, very carefully because Brazil... Back during the the uh, Yom Kippur War in 1973, when you know the world was basically shut off from its oil supplies by OPEC, yeah, the Brazilian government decided at that juncture that never ever again was Brazil going to be put in a position where, as a nation, they were dependent on number one the good graces of uh, a bunch of Western-hating uh, Middle Eastern tyrants. And number two, that they were not going to be dependent on the good graces of the United States to secure those energy supplies. Right. So Brazil began a program of energy independence and autarky to develop alternative sources of fuel for automobiles and so on, to develop their uh, national power infrastructure and so on and so forth. And they have done an amazing job. Uh, to the point that some sources that you can check will say that Brazil's reliance on petroleum, that about 90% of the cars that you see down there driving on the highways and streets yeah. are actually being fueled by alcohol and other things yeah. rather than gasoline. So Brazil has done an amazing thing. And this has, of course, not only earned them the ire of the elite, but of, of uh, certain nations that are dependent on keeping everybody on the petroleum needle, you know, to draw the drug addiction yeah. analogy. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that Brazil did, incidentally, I should mention this in, in, in regard to everything else, is you can go online and find some amazing papers in physics that are being published in, in the journals that come from Brazil. Uh, if you want a lot of the, of the actual nuts and bolts research into some of these alternative energy ideas and technologies, look at Brazil. 
and even to to kind of pat my own back here the if you go to the book the cosmic war and open it and read that scenario that kind of fictitious scenario at the very beginning of the book you recall that the country that i mention amongst the others that seems so odd and out of place as having a technology to deal with asteroids coming into our orbit is Brazil. Remember that? Okay. Well, I mentioned Brazil precisely because Brazil is one of those countries that deliberately looked at some of these alternative energy technologies, including those alternative weapons technologies. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, you know... Uh, Someone, in my opinion then, with those blackouts, was sending Brazil a message. Kind of like 9-11. Kind of like 9-11. You know, yeah. we, can, we can shut you down. Uh, but I don't think that that message was sent with any of those technologies. I think that probably it was done through some sort of computer hacking. Wow. Uh-huh. Now... Brazil is not, in my opinion, going to take any of that lying down. I agree. My guess is is that if they are consistent with their national policy that they've pursued for the last 30 to 40 years, that they are probably going to invest very heavily in computer security for their infrastructure that they are going to make it as independent of the rest of the world as they can Good. in terms of people being able to enter it and do those sorts of things to it. Uh, I just don't see them um, knuckling under to whoever did it to them. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I think it was a message, but I think, you know, if they're going to try and get Brazil into their New World Order bandwagon and club, uh, good luck to them. Uh, <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen. Well, I hope not. No, I don't think it will. Well, okay. Let's, uh, <laughs> with this, let's go back to the missing money, Joseph. Mm -hmm. And the things on the moon yes. and Mars, Yes. there's been... There have been people that have said that Mars had a gigantic flood yes. at one time. Yes. And that it is very probable that the people that were there vacated. Yes. Um, and it's probable they came here. Yeah. Okay. Um and when they came here, they brought their technology with them. Okay. All right. Is uh, not knowing, you know, what kind of quote end of quote people they are. Um, we have talked at length about the fact that the pre-flood world had very extraordinarily uh, intricate high technology mm -hmm. okay it is very possible is it not that those um, 
possessors of that technology either are still alive and around mm -hmm. or they have carefully passed that technology into certain families, as it were. Mm -hmm. um, and we are seeing the emergence of some of it that's maybe, I mean, they're saying that the technology that actually exists right now mm -hmm. is, you know, 50 to 100 years or more in advance of anything that regular people on this planet even know about. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, knowing that there was uh, a lot of this technology that's been around for a very long time, um, could that be where perhaps these structures on the moon uh, came from, from these people? Um, and are there what looks to be maybe more recent structures on Mars? On Mars? Yeah. Well, I mean, that was a long question, and I don't yeah. remember all the details of it. Um, well, jump in anywhere. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, there are some things, photographs that were taken by NASA during this last, you know, let's crash a satellite into the moon and see what it does. Yeah. Uh, there are some very, very stunning photographs from the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter that were taken during this whole period that, to my mind, is yet more uh, evidence, really kind of icing on the cake, that, that there are artificial structures of some sort on the moon. As to who put them there, it's my belief that when we look at all of the evidence of artificial structures, not only on celestial bodies and throughout the solar system, but artificial structures that are celestial bodies yeah. in the solar yeah. system. Uh, when you put all of that together, I think what you're really looking at are remnants, basically, of one civilization. And you know my scenario. I think that civilization literally blew itself apart in a tremendously destructive war. Yeah. Now, as a result of that, the technologies that they had probably could not be sustained because the infrastructure for doing so was no longer in place. Yeah. You know, it would be like, God forbid, the world suffering an all-out nuclear war. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, all of the technology to do it exists, but once you fight a war like that, you rip apart the infrastructure that created the technology to fight it to begin with. Yeah. So, you know, we might... In, as individuals or families have our little, you know, automobiles or toys. But at a certain juncture, our ability to replace those technologies as they wear out simply is no longer there, and we're right back to horse and buggies again. Right. So there is a period following this war when those technologies would have still been usable, but ultimately they're destined for extinction because you've blown away the infrastructure that can sustain them. As a result of that, my scenario has always been that the survivors of that war, both winners and losers, 
created a very carefully contrived uh, multi-tiered symbolic uh, set of stories, myths, basically, that encoded and sought to perpetuate the core basis of that knowledge over time. Okay? Mm-hmm. And that's what I think we're looking at with many, many, many mythological traditions in the world. I think we're looking at legacies of that process. Because, for one thing, you have in many of those mythologies, particularly from India on over through Mesopotamia and into Egypt, you have embodied within those various uh, textual traditions mathematical codes that are very explicit once you once you know how to recognize them so that code in itself is is a sign a sure and certain sign that you're dealing with something much more sophisticated than just what appears to be at first glance when you're reading some of these texts i also believe and i've made you know throughout most of my books dealing with ancient history and and technologies, I've made the case that those texts, in some cases, embody the actual science in a very peculiar way. So, yeah, I think as a result of that, you find then emerging certain elites whose job it is to pass these stories down and as much as possible pass down the meaning of those stories to their initiates. So there is actually kind of, to put it rather differently, there's a two-track program taking place to ensure that this knowledge is preserved and eventually recovered. Okay? Okay. The one thing is the creation of the myths themselves, and the other is the creation of the communities to sustain them. So I think that's where you have the origin of, in, in reality where you have the origin of of the ancient mystery schools i think that they are created precisely for this purpose now you know no academic in any american or or european university is ever going to come out and say that but but that's essentially what i believe that they were is that these were essentially secret fraternities designed to, to preserve that knowledge now were families involved with that? Well, yeah, given the societies back then and the way they were constructed, you betcha. Yeah. Uh, were they involved over time? Yes. Can you make a case that certain families in the modern world are descended from them? That's much, much more problematical and difficult. Okay. As a possibility? Sure, it's possible. But... Um, is it necessary to argue that to sustain the case that these technologies and these myths and traditions that encode all this stuff are are decodable? No, uh, you don't need to maintain that those institutions are still in existence along with the texts themselves. Well, I think they are. Yeah. But like I say, making the case for continuity since ancient times, I've mentioned this before in yeah. one of these interviews, making that case is extraordinarily difficult. Difficult, yeah. Is it possible, Joseph, that uh, we, or Russia, for example, have um, 
people actually uh, living on the moon right now? Well, it, I certainly think, given the fact that you have uh, so many people involved with the American Black Project that yeah. have gone on public record and said that the technologies that we actually have inside of those projects is so much more than people can possibly even imagine. Yeah. Uh, one of them in particular, a uh, fellow that worked for the Lockheed Skunk Works, was on record as saying, you know, we have the technology to go to the stars. Yes. And I think he even went on record and said that we've been there. Yeah. <laughs> you know? so, yeah. So is it possible with those technologies that we have something, you know, right next door on the moon? Well, sure, of course. Yeah. Wow. There, you know, of course it is. Uh, the possibility doesn't necessarily mean that we do. Yeah. Um, but if you grant the technology, I mean, my word, George Ann, let's go back all the way to Nikola Tesla. Oh, yes. You know, Tesla's real, one of his real big life aims was precisely to come up with some sort of uh, aircraft that was basically electrically propelled. Yeah. I mean, that was one of his goals of his research, or his lifelong research. Well, you know, if Tesla can think of this way back in the 19th century and think of a staged program of research to get him there, yeah. <laughs> you know, well, you know, as my word, the man's been dead since 1943. <laughs> So, gosh, go figure, what could we have done in the 66 years since his death with enough money and enough commitment? Uh, could could we have developed those technologies? You betcha. Would those technologies uh, remain classified? Absolutely they would because, again, those technologies, number one, can be weaponized into just horrendous things. Yes. You know, and I do talk about Tesla uh, in that respect in, in uh, Babylon's Banksters, as a yeah, matter yeah. of fact. Yeah. So uh, would it remain classified? Well, just for that reason alone it would. But number two, it would remain classified. Because if you have, let's put ourselves in the position of the Pentagon and, and the Anglo-American elite for a moment. If you have a world increasingly turning against you, yeah. You'd better have a whole card that you're holding in your hand, and it better be a real high one, so that if, God forbid, anything should happen that the world turns against you openly yeah. and actively, you have a technological reserve you can fall back on and 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 uh, trumpet. So. Uh, I think it would be I think it would be the strategic decision of the people developing those technologies to keep them off the books for as long as possible as a kind of strategic reserve. And again, I, I point to the example of Nazi Germany yeah. in that case because that is exactly the kind of, of approach that they took to it. So, you know, uh, atom bombs are one thing, and, you know, uh, it's kind of hard to ignore that you've got an atom bomb when you're blowing them up over Japanese cities. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but, you know, if you've got all this other stuff, that's something you're going to want to keep very quiet, because atom bombs are pop guns, 
by comparison. Yes, they're like antiques. They're like antiques, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing is that people, you know, I'm, I'm going to go into a UFO tangent here for a moment, okay. if I may. All right. Because, you know, I keep telling people you're not connecting all the dots correctly. Way back in Reich of the Black Sun, and again in, uh, oh, golly, I forget which book. <laughs> I think it was Secrets of the Unified Field, but I've got to go back and read my own books to remember where I put it. <laughs> but anyway, you know, I keep saying to people that when men write books, it's as close as men will ever come to, you know, to childbirth. Because oh, <laughs> after the whole ex brutal experience, you just want to forget it. You know? yes. Yes. <laughs> but anyway, um, the Germans, prior to and during the war, as anybody who has researched the copious amount of documentation that does exist in, in American and, and uh, British archives that's been declassified, the Germans were certainly interesting, er, researching very interesting methods of electromagnetic disruption of motors. Yes. Okay? Yes. Even Italy was, was doing that, and, and you know, Tesla himself, long before, had said, hey, this is a really cool idea. So, you know, the idea's, again, been around for 100 years. The Germans did bring it to a certain point of development where it was at least practical as, as a device at very limited distances, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, I mention this because a great deal of... Uh, noise has been made in the UFO community concerning two very famous UFO incidents, one involving the Soviet Union and another involving the United States, in which a UFO was hovering over missile silos and quite literally turned them on and then turned them off. Wow. Yeah. In other words, a message was being sent by someone, yeah. and I don't think it was E.T., that's my point. Because, yeah. again, the track record is clear that these are terrestrial technologies, all right? Someone was sending a message to the United States and the Soviet Union that these gigantic nuclear arsenals were totally useless at the touch of a button. Now, yeah. you know, um, you make of that what you will, but again, connect the dots. Well, Joseph, by the same token, nuclear power plants, totally useless. Everybody on the face of this planet could have electricity, free electricity. Well, there are various, you know, there are yeah. various things, but a nuclear power plant, you know, these, these uh, dinosaur fission plants. Yeah. You know, with their whole nightmarish implication of, you know, a potential China syndrome, you know, that yeah. famous movie with Jack Lemmon and, and uh, what's her name? <laughs> I always forget her. Jane Fonda. Yeah, her. Her. <laughs> um, you know, a, a, a nuclear power plant based on fission is just an incredibly uh, inefficient way of combining technologies, yeah. number one, especially to make electricity. Yeah. And it's a dangerous technology. I mean, you know, my word, Three Mile Island, let's remember, folks, could have become the American Chernobyl. Well, you know, we've got power plants that are sitting 
right on top of known earthquake oh, faults I know that. I know that. in this country. I know that. I know that. Oh. You know, and, and my word, just look at what the Russians had to do just to put out Chernobyl. I mean, you know, uh, a total disaster. Oh, absolutely, Joseph. And um, the point of the matter is, is, you know, I mentioned an American inventor by the name of Philo Farnsworth. Yeah. In the Nazi International. And really, he's a fellow that, you know, you could just do several shows or interviews of, like this about. Yeah. Because Philo Farnsworth was one of the few people in the world back in the 1920s that dreamt up television. And I mean, when I say dreamt up, this man worked out each and every last little step that he needed to develop the technology in order to make television work. And he was, you know, his specialty was engineering vacuum tubes, okay? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, this man, when I say work out the details, that's exactly what I mean. You know, you can go look up the patents, uh, Philo Farnsworth patents, for, for all the different tubes that he developed yeah. to make television work, okay? So Farnsworth, you know, if there was anybody that could do something really significant with a vacuum tube, it was Philo Farnsworth. And one of the interesting little things, and I put this little device in, in the Nazi International just to show people this is an actual device that had an actual U.S. patent assigned to it, okay? Yeah. It was a little device about as big as a softball, all right? And around it he put little uh, vacuum tube particle accelerators. On the inside of this ball, he placed a bunch of, uh, I think it was lithium deuteride or something like that, under pressure, okay, in the very center of this little ball. And then he zapped it, okay, with all of these little particle accelerator tubes that were fashioned around it. Well, what happened when he did that? Well, what he got was a sustained, listen carefully, my friends, was a sustained fusion reaction that lasted a good half a minute. All right? Yeah. And he reported this in the press at the time. He even held a press conference. Now, let's stop and consider what I've just told everybody. This means that at an expense of maybe, oh, back then, $150,000 to $200,000, and a device that you could hold in your hand, that he sustained the very same kind of reaction that's taking place in the sun. Wow. And he did it without lasers. He did it without multi-billion dollar gigantic wiggler magnets. Yeah. Okay. So in other words, the fusion, you know, the big fusion industry itself, in a certain sense, is a diversion for something that has already been achieved and achieved at magnitudes less than the cost of these gigantic multi-billion dollar fusion research projects. Wow. Now, what happened to his device? Well, at the time he was working for Here It Comes, IT&T. Oh. And IT&T, of course, asserted its rights over the patent. And it has never, at least publicly, been developed wow. since 1965. Huh. So in other words, 
you know, even with nuclear power, if you want to build a power plant that can produce some power and has considerably less danger involved than a fission plant, build a fusion plant, for crying out loud. So again, you know, not only are we dealing with suppressed physics, we're dealing with suppressed technologies, many of which you can go right online and look up. (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, the guy that sticks a pole in his yard and uh, they arrest him. Well, yeah, that's, you know... that's the other. That's the other thing. Yeah. Um, uh, that whole approach. I mean, there there have been these inventors inventing, you know, their own electrical power systems and taking themselves off the grid, and inevitably they run into trouble. And they run into trouble because that corporate elite does not want it out yeah. that this technology that they have everyone hooked into and dependent on yes. is as obsolete as the dodo bird. Yeah, that's right. Uh, well said, Jeff. And, and the reason they don't want anybody to be off of that technology is they know that the other technology, I go right back to what I said before, number one, will end their power monopoly. Yes. And their economic monopoly. But number two, any rogue nation that would choose to weaponize it would have the world hostage. Yeah. So, you know, they are faced with a big, huge conundrum. I suspect that events will simply force them to release this technology. In a certain sense, it's already happening because more and more talk is being given and paid attention to this technology on television. Yeah. yeah. You know, and I always go to the fact that when they start preparing somebody for some climate change, they always put it out as fiction first on television. Then they do their little documentaries making fun of it. Yeah. Then they do their documentaries that say, hmm, this is interesting. And then they do their documentaries saying, well, why haven't we done this? Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're oh. sort of in the second documentary stage right oh, now. Boy. But, but I think, you know, they're getting ready for something very clearly. Okay. Is that um, 2012? Well, it could very well be. You know, I'm not a 2012 expert. I never have been. Yeah. I, um, my publisher occasionally, one of my publishers sends me all sorts of books just out of the blue, you know. Um, and I've received a lot of 2012 books that way. But quite yeah. frankly... Uh, I tr- I've tried to read those things, George Ann, but quite frankly, they just leave me cold. And the reason that most of them leave me cold is that what they're really advocating is uh, a worldview that mankind is just basically more or less helpless in the face and of doomed. and doomed in yeah. the face of all these cosmic catastrophes. Right. Uh, number one, you know, anybody who's read the cosmic war knows that I'm not a catastrophist right um, and number two I, I've read all of these very ingenious explanations of 2012 and quite frankly with but one or two exceptions most of them make no sense to me mm. now that either means I'm a blockhead or they're <laughs> wrong <laughs> <laughs> oh, well 
you know, you're right. I mean, there are people. So I'm not a blockhead. This no, is reassuring. <laughs> I don't. I don't think you are. Uh uh-uh. uh No, no. But there are people out there that it serves their interest to um, promote this. Well, apocalypticism is is what you want in a culture when you don't want any action by the people being taken. Yeah. Uh, you know, apocalypticism is totally destroying of, of human initiative and energy and action. It's hopeless. Yeah, you know, people yeah. don't act because everything's hopeless, so, you know, we'll just have another beer and pizza and watch football. Yeah. Uh, but I, I just... Uh, you know, for so many reasons, I, I have never bought into the apocalypse culture either as a religious doctrine uh, or as just a general cultural phenomenon. Because inevitably, the only thing that it really introduces is a kind of uh, spiritual decay and and inaction. Right. And right. even if even if that inaction is in nothing more than the realm of human thought. Well, you know, all human action begins as a thought. Right. So just to get people not to think about stuff anymore or to think that everything is doom and gloom all the time is a real coup for the people putting that stuff out. Well, doesn't that also, in a sense, uh, at another level, create a template? Well, of course it does. When people begin in mass thinking that way? Of course it does. Absolutely it does. Absolutely. This is why I keep telling everybody, number one, don't buy into the scaremongering. And number two, for crying out loud, start praying for good things to happen and for bad people to wake up and have a change of heart and and to become good because that changes things. Yes, it does. Yes, it does, Joseph. Do good and... Others will see good, you know, and and many of them will be inclined to do good themselves. And you don't have to do good on a cosmic scale. That's my point. You do good on the scale in which you can do it. Yeah. You know, God didn't say love the whole cosmos. He said love your neighbor. Yeah, good point. You know, uh, bear ye one another's burdens, but that doesn't mean you have to bear China's burdens, you know. Right. So um, it's always close to home. So start close to home and do it in your actions and thoughts and prayers and deeds in small ways. But, you know, you can certainly, as part of your thoughts and and concepts, include the whole world in them. And if everybody does it, golly, just imagine. Oh, yeah. The biggest power in the world is none of this physics that I've been talking about. The biggest power in the world is the human mind. I believe that, yes. And, you know, God gave that to people. Yes, he did. They do not use it. No, they don't. And a lot of that, Joseph, is they are really, in a sense, prevented from using it because there's so much negativity all around them. Bingo. That's my point. And to the point where we have people committing suicide, for heaven's sakes, because of the hardships of the banks, this terrible flu, uh, all this stuff. It's, you know, it's just... uh, It is hard because we're we're all human and we we all get... 
uh, into our down periods, and we yeah. all get into our periods of, you know, woe is I, and, and the world is landing on my head, and there's nothing I can do about it, and the sky is falling, you know. <laughs> yeah. We all get that way. That's part of being human. Yeah. But the the point is, is that as a culture, this gloom and doom apocalypse culture that we are in, with all of the prognosticators and all of their doom and gloom predictions. Well, you know, when people are in the prediction business, I lump them together with weathermen. Yeah. You know, uh, I put about as much stock in any of those kinds of predictions, regardless of who it's coming from and all the highfalutin models they're basing it on. Because, um, by and large, prediction is a very bad business to go into. I mean, the track record is never very good. Right. So I just, number one, I don't pay them much attention. If the apocalypse happens, it's going to happen and there's nothing I can do about it. But in the meantime, I'm going to work and do my little part so that it won't. <laughs> right, right. And pray. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Um question mm -hmm. you know in the um it says where two or more are gathered in my name mm -hmm. when people as a group mm -hmm. pray mm -hmm. um that certain other people will wake up and stop their viciousness mm -hmm. um the more people that are gathered in that way of a common mind, mm -hmm. does that make more than one template, or does that make the template even stronger? Oh, that's a Pandora's box of a question. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's an excellent question. No, it's an excellent question. Um, let me put it this way. Okay. My own little studies, my own little... Um, private studies that I've mentioned to you yes. that are in a black notebook. Yes. Um, those indicate to me that a group phenomenon, when it operates like that, yeah. has a multiplying effect. Oh, force multiplier. Uh, yeah, it's a force multiplier, to use wow. the military term, yes. Okay. Um, it it uh, seems to have a, you know, this is, to put it bluntly, this is why tyrants are always of a intention to get their nations and societies thinking in lockstep. Yes. Yeah. Because it does multiply the power that is available to them. Yeah. Okay? So it's it's nothing new. It's nothing unknown. But in terms of actual action on a, uh, to use the term spiritual, and I don't mean spiritual in the sense of religious. I simply mean it in the sense of non-material. Okay? Right, right. Uh, to to put it in that sense, there is a multiplier effect spiritually then. Mm -hmm. uh, and certainly in terms of its potential physics significance, there is one. 
in that uh, I don't know how many of your listeners are familiar with the fact that Princeton is running a, a uh, oh, yes. consciousness research project. Right. And they have these little meters placed all over the world. I don't know exactly what in the name of sense these things are measuring. But interestingly enough, uh, these meters picked up a huge spike just a, a few hours prior to 9-11. Yeah. And then another one afterward. So the data seems to indicate that there is a group consciousness effect even with perception and that there is a kind of pre-action in group consciousness to certain things. So, yeah, there is a multiplier effect in just about every way you can apply this stuff. Wow. And, you know, um, again, I'm not getting into... Yeah lurid details that are in the little black book um, because uh, it's something I've I've really kept kind of to myself for, for as you know well many, don't tell many, me because I don't many, want people many, on many, my doorstep years. no I, it's something I've kept oh. to myself for many 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 years yes. but uh, I've let little little bits and pieces of it out in yeah. the books and uh, yeah uh, so far, only a couple of people have emailed me and, and uh, seem to get at least part of it. Wow. Well, I just look for good things, Joseph. And, you know, people at heart are basically good. And it just seems to me that it is governments that will not allow people to live in peace well throughout history yeah it yeah governments are just uh governments are always corrupting somehow uh regardless of the period of history or the yeah. human society that one is dealing with they like just a, always seem to to grow some sort of cancer uh, of of the soul yeah but, they're like uh, a curse yeah, they haven't they haven't done too well in the last hundred years, that's for sure. <laughs> Boy, you're not kidding. <laughs> yeah. Well, Joseph Farrell, mm -hmm. thank you so much. You're and, more you than know, And your work is just, I I cannot compliment you enough. Well, it, thank you. It, I appreciate it. It is really uh, insightful and stunning and mind expanding. Oh my goodness. And. When will these new books be out? Uh, Babylon's Banksters is supposed to be out, and I have not heard from the publisher in a couple of months. But the last time we talked, he said uh, that the earliest it would be out would possibly be February, but it definitely has to be out by April because yeah. that's when the distributors start doing their distributing. Uh, Reich, Roswell and the Reich will, at least as far as what Amazon is saying, you know, yeah. my publisher hasn't told me, but at least as far as what Amazon is saying, they're saying March the 10th. I have a suspicion that it could be earlier because uh, Adventures Unlimited, uh, unlike most publishers, has a very, very quick turnaround time from the time they receive a manuscript to the time it's actually uh, printed up and bound and, and ready to ship. So I... I'm going to speculate and say that 
uh, Roswell and the Reich very possibly could be out uh, next February, so uh, a mere couple of months really away. Wow. Well, I would certainly urge people to get their hands on these books. <laughs> yeah, they're oh. both they're both mind they're both mind blowing in their own <laughs> yes. in their own very different ways. <laughs> Every one of your books is that way, Joseph. I mean, it really does. It uh it's like, oh yeah, you know, wow <laughs> every page. It, it's you know it, it is just I mean, your research is just stunning. It, oh, thank you. It really is. Thank you. And everybody, please, please go to GizaDeathStar.com. Use that PayPal button up there. Don't we, use that PayPal button oh, up there. Use George Ann's. Oh, <laughs> oh goodness. Well, gosh. Well, thank you. Oh, Joseph. Well, everybody... I I do want to say a special hello to um, a new person there in uh, Serbia. Serbia, yes. Yes. Uh -huh. yeah. uh, very glad to have you on board here. <laughs> and um, just everybody all over the planet that loves Joseph Farrell, that respects his work, um, you can go to the Bite Show. Go to the audio library, click on Joseph Farrell's name, and his special page at the Byte Show will open up with all of the audio files there, that uh, the archive that Joseph and I have worked on for a long time now, and they're all free for you to listen to and um, make copies of, pass them out, uh, let people everywhere know about the work of Dr. Joseph P. Farrell. So, with that said, God bless you all for listening, no matter where you are on this planet, or maybe off. <laughs> <laughs> I know there's somebody out there listening. <laughs> yeah. God bless you too, Joseph. Yeah, you too. Good night, everybody. Good night. Okay, there we go. Okay, good, good, good. Um, if you have your scriptures, let's go with me right now to the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians and chapter 1. Okay, I'll let you get there and let's pray for a moment before we get started. Heavenly Father, we want to say thank you. We want to say thank you, Father, for everything. We are grateful and we come before you with grateful hearts as your children. This day, um, those that are made in the image and the likeness of you, the Most High, the one that's above it all, with the spark of your life flowing through us, because the kingdom is within us. And so we are grateful, Father, for what we have in you and who we are in you. We're grateful for all that has come before us. We're grateful for what is happening and what you are doing in and through your people at such a time as this. And Father, as we go, as we close out this year and as we go into this next year, um, we are just, we just want to recognize your goodness and your faithfulness 
and the way, Father, in which you have walked with us and walked us through all that has transpired. So as we just um, would spend some time in your word and in your truth this day, we ask that your spirit that leads and guides us into all truth would teach us and ground us and guide us in the way that we should go and how we should relate in and through this life. We invite you into this time and into every word that is spoken and every thought that is construed and every direction and action that is taken. In Jesus' name, thank you. Okay, um, yes, so Ephesians chapter 1. Let's begin at verse number 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood and forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of time he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom we, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who worketh all things, after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ." in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnestness of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession, unto the praise of his glory. Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks to you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us word who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and set him on his, at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principalities and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. All right. Thank God. Um, Okay, so there are many places 
for us as the children of the Most High to one, recognize the blessing that is ours in the way, the truth, and the life. You know, it's, there is a, a, an incredible blessing that we have um, according as he has quickened us within ourselves and we have responded to that quickening. As we have done that and we've always had that. You've always had that quickening within you that something is not right in this place and you have sought the truth. And as that truth has become more and more established within you and within your heart as you've continued to seek and to knock and to find and you've gone forward in your life and your journey, as that has happened and that has taken place, now, this day, you begin to see the blessing that is yours in Christ. And you also recognize where that blessing comes from. It doesn't come from the hand of man. It doesn't come from the good intentions of people around you. This is something that flows to you and through you from the source of all things. You know, sometimes when I talk with people, I speak of the Most High. And so, and sometimes people ask me, well, why do I say that? Well, because... When people talk about God, I sometimes wonder, which God are you talking about? You know, there's in, in, in India, there's 300 million gods that are there. So which one are you speaking of? But when we speak, we speak of the one that is above all, above it all. And when people say, well, you know, what about this one? Well, is there one above him? Well, keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Because there is the oversoul. There is the most high. There is the one that's above it all. And as much as people want to try to create some sort of limitation and some sort of cap, we keep going. We go to the source of all things because from him, in him, you live and move and have your being. And wherein he hath toward, uh, abounded towards us, in verse 8, in all wisdom and prudence. See, we don't have an intermediary. We don't have a somebody standing in the place and cutting us off and saying, no, you can't have that. No, everyone that has it, here's my voice right now. You have access to the most high, to the one where all of this comes from. And Jesus has made that way for you. He made it known. He created the path. He showed you the way. He offered you the gate. And you have taken it and you've gone forward and you go in and out and you receive that, that wisdom that comes from the Most High, that quickening that comes from the Most High. And this is, this is His good pleasure towards us. So we have been blessed. And, and you know, when you start to continue on this path of truth and this path of right standing with the Most High, what happens along the way in this journey is that other things that do not resonate in that frequency, they fall off. They fall off. How many, you've seen it, you've seen it this last year. Now as we are departing the year 2023, you have seen it. Those that would speak and would, would venerate themselves as agents of truth and yet, when you look and you see what they've done with that, they are just trying to replicate the very same system that they came out of. They're not overcomers. 
They are harvesters and those that are participants in the old system. They just want to change their ranking in a new system that might be coming in. That's not yours. That's not ours. That's not the path that God has for you. As we go forward and as we look and as we see, as you continue to move in truth, what's continuing to happen is that which is not on that alignment and on that frequency is just falling off and falling away. And it keeps happening. So in verse 13, where it says, In whom ye also trusted, after ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnestness of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Okay, so for us, we've trusted. And we've trusted in the Most High. And even when we didn't have all of the pieces, God has still showed himself faithful because he sees you. He sees your heart. He knows where you are coming from. He knows, are you seeking the truth in him? Or are you trying to strike a deal with the world and just stamp his label on it? You know, the fall of all these religious leaders around the world, what they've done is they've struck a deal with the world and all they're trying to do is stamp the label of Jesus on it if it will give them um, their position. How many people tried to use Jesus for their own worldly carnal purposes and not aligning themselves with the truth, but rather trying to jimmy themselves in and use the truth and and the label of Jesus as a ways and means to give validation to their viewpoint and to validation to their otherwise um, position that doesn't work. You know, I sometimes, when I read the scriptures and I, I look at this and I look at the way that Jesus was, Jesus said, I only do what I see my father doing. He said, I only speak the words I hear from the father. So if that's the case, there's a lot of things that Jesus did. And there's a lot of things that Jesus did not do. Then my question to this day, bringing it forward, are those that say that they have a relationship or a connection with Jesus, are they doing what they see Jesus doing? What they saw Jesus doing? What they see the father doing? Because there's there's things in the scriptures, and you got to reconcile this, where Jesus did not do what the religious leaders of the day were doing. Because that was not what the Father was doing. If it was what the Father was doing, then Jesus would have had to have replicated that and done the same. I use the example of the man at the pool um, with the, the angel that stirred the water. Well... Uh, You know, Jesus would have had to put that man in the pool for his healing after he healed him if he was going to be doing what he saw the father doing, if that was the father. And that wasn't the father. That's why he didn't do that. And it also wasn't the father to tell him to not carry a mat on the Sabbath. That was the religions and the rituals of man. You know, why is it that every time the man gets free, the other men show up wanting to put you back into bondage? to create rules and restrictions that have no bearing except to tie you up into mental knots, into spiritual gymnastics to try to figure out how to go through this life. Listen, you 
the kingdom is within you. So God, you, if you set your frequency on the truth and you let God reveal that, and if you are misdirected, if you're willing to align yourself in what is truth as it's revealed to you, and you are honest with that before the Most High, you, you don't need much more than that. Because you know why? Wherever you're off, you can make a course correction and be right back on track. And then you stick to that track once you know what the truth is. You don't, you don't deviate from that way. But see, that is what they don't want you to have. Because now you're not controlled. And you're definitely not controlled by them. If the Spirit can speak to you within and show you the direction that you should go, then why do you need them? The answer is you do not need them. And they fear that because it's bad for the collection on Sunday. It's bad for the control construct. It's bad for free labor. It's bad for you venerating those that would stand on a stage while you sit on the floor and they would tell you, you must do this and you must do that. And you must be beholden to them. You know, go, if, you, if you're curious about the, the corruption that comes into those kinds of systems, search for some news articles about pedophilia in the church. The number of, of child molesting priests in the Catholic Church, for example. This goes into the thousands covered in mainstream news. Now, why? Why? What is going on that a system would allow for that? let alone perpetuate it, let alone it comes to the surface and that is an underreporting of a problem. Listen, when the systems are there and the access point is corrupted and the spirit is not what is esteemed and truth is not what's esteemed, but the, the ways of man and the systems of man and the control constructs of man where there is a unhealthy relationship with all of these things and ego can creep in and and people start to figure out how do they game the systems you're going to see that again and again because what happens they figure out how they get in the book of Jude talks about it they creeped in as unaware and then as time goes forward the capture of those systems becomes complete and now it is the deviance and the pedophiles and the perverts that now cover for each other. Because they've got a, in their mind, they've got, they've got a lock on that thing. And as long as they cover for each other, they can keep that thing going. Now here's the difference. In the time that we've now moved into, you can't cover anything. Because all is being made known. And thank God for that. Everything is being revealed. And thank God for that. There, there is nothing that is being hidden anymore going forward that will not be broadcast from the rooftops. Thank God for that. There are the, the, their schemes and their plans and their shenanigans are collapsing around them because their systems have been exposed. The ways that they have that manipulated the construct for their own selfish gain into the destruction of humanity, into the destroying of bodies and spirits and souls, is now being revealed and being turned back on them. The scriptures talk about give them back the cup they gave others to drink. Let them drink it to the dregs. Let them have that cup. It's being given back to them. This is not yours to drink, it's theirs. This is not your debt, it's theirs. This is not your agreement with the world, it's theirs. They want to dump on you 
the consequences for their actions. That is not yours. Let them drink it. Let them take it. Let them reap what they've sown. You, my brother, you, my sister, you reap a harvest of goodness. You reap a harvest of truth. You spend your time in that which has lasting value. Lasting value. You know, the, the surprise of this time for myself was more than anything was how few it seemed really wanted to be free. Because, and I I think part of the reason for that is because of the responsibility that comes with freedom. Listen, when you're a slave, you don't have to think about much. Because your master sets the confines and the, 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 the parameters of your life. So you know what your life will be. You know what you're going to do. You know where you're going to go. You know what your next day is going to look like. And then you can complain about it. Um, and it's not your fault, right? Because you can always blame it on the master. On their, your slaver. But when you're free... Now you're responsible. And now, whatever happens is on you. Will you take that responsibility that comes with freedom? Will you go forward in what God reveals to you? Will you take the mistakes you make in that responsibility, learn from them, and do better? Or will you continue to to want to be a juvenile and blame somebody else for the reason that your life is what it is. Listen, everything I have experienced in my own life is a product of my journey. Thank God for it, good and bad. And I hold nothing in my heart against anyone for any of it because I'm grateful for all of it because I see it now through the eyes of what this journey and this process has intended to do in building, even within myself, a comprehension, an understanding. Listen, we're nobody's victim. None. We're no one's victim. Every every difficult circumstance you've experienced in your life God can turn that into a blessing and in a way to help others to have learned to create solutions, to make a difference. None of it needs to be a detriment. None of it needs to be a handicap. None of it needs to be something that holds you back from the fullness of the life God intended for you. None of it needs to keep you from experiencing that which God intends for you. Going into this next year, can we do it with thanksgiving? Can we do it with gratitude in anticipation of the fulfillment of every promise that he's put within your heart? How about that for a change? Can you see the fulfillment rather than the circumstance? 
You know, the way the world works, it continues to feed you fear and feed you thoughts of lack and enemies all around you and everything else so that you will internalize that and then you will create it and you will then be the creator of your own personal prison. Now, wouldn't you prefer to move forward in the fullness of creation as God has put it within you to create? Because you have been made in the image and the likeness of the Most High. You have been made in God's image. And you know what? While the world is trying to twist and turn and get caught up in definitions and get caught up in different texts and now this is known and that's known and aliens are popping out of the ground and out of the skies and is the world flat? Is it round? Is it this? Is it that? Is it a simulation? Is it? Listen, does any of that matter if you don't know, if you're not connected to the source of all things? You can have all the knowledge in the world. But what do you do with it? You can have all the answers in the world, but if you don't apply them, what good is it to you? You're just sitting on a bunch of data. If you don't have peace within, what difference does it make if you change everything else around you? The kingdom is within you. The answers are within you. The solution is within you. And and thank God for that. Thank God for that. Verse 17 in Ephesians says, That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us word who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places far above all principalities and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, that he might put all things under his feet and give and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. The greatness of, the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe. Listen, this is yours. Jesus taught and showed and quickened us in the way. We have much to be grateful for. God has brought you this far. You have come this far. Don't give up now. Do not give up now. Rather, look to Him who brought you this far and look back at what He's taken you through. You can look back and you can see how He's carried you through on all of these circumstances and all these situations. Every one of them. Leave the space for God to do the miraculous. After a while... It stops being a surprise to you because he has seen him do it again and again. 
He comes through. God comes through in the clutch for his people. And he wants you to be comfortable with that. Because then you know why? He can stretch you and he can take you to the edge of it all. And you will always know that he's with you in that. And he will carry you through. God will carry you through. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And what you need, all these things, shall be added unto you. What you need will be there. You put him first. You put the purposes of the Most High first. You seek him first. You look to his direction. Your life is not your own while you're here. While you're here, you want him to direct Let Him quicken you within. And listen, whenever you start to feel like giving up, just bring it back to Him. He will direct you. You want to stop on anything when God puts it in you to stop. Not when you as a... Not when you and yourself, apart from Him, and the the attacks of the world, that's not when you want to stop. You want to stop when God says, It's finished. Jesus said it was finished. That was it. Now his assignment's done. It no longer needs him to continue. Would to God that we would rise up in the fullness of who we are going into this next year. Connect with our brothers and sisters in Christ and those that are on the path Who's Well, Christ. Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. So connect with your brothers and sisters in truth. Connect with your brothers and sisters that are on the way. Connect with your brothers and sisters that are life and life givers. Team humanity. Bless them. Bless each other. Let God guide. This is an incredible time. And you should be grateful. Grateful for where we are. Let God quicken you. Let Him guide you. Trust the journey and trust the path that He takes you on. Seek His face. Let Him guide you. He'll show you. And as He shows you, take the steps that He shows you to take. Let Him quicken you. Because in the quickening is how you will also unfold the journey He has for you. We don't think like the way the world thinks. Let God show you and in that path be blessed. In Jesus' name.